0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives and I'm Tracy McRae. This year the US Food and Drug Administration announced changes to the nutrition facts label found on packaged foods. They're trying to make the information more understandable for consumers. We'll sort out just what those numbers on the label mean.
2: In making the serving size more realistic, it's meant to be representative of what Americans may eat. They're getting a handle on a population that probably consumes too many calories or is unaware of their calories. It's putting a spotlight on those
3: also on the program pregnancy is a good time to keep exercising or even to get started we'll discuss exercise options with a baby on board
1: and how body donation is important in training new physicians
3: all that along with this week's health and medical news right after this
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schein. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, the Nutrition Facts label, you've seen that before on everything you buy at the grocery store? Well, it's something that is required by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, this label is supposed to provide detailed information about a food's nutrient content, like what's in there. How much fat, how much sugar, sodium, fiber... But sometimes, and particularly for me, and it's always been the case, the labels can be pretty confusing or misleading for shoppers, consumers.
3: Even for orthopedic surgeons? Well,
1: probably only for (laughs) orthopedic surgeons.
3: (laughs) Well, in 2016, the FDA announced changes to the label aimed at helping consumers to make more informed choices. Here to discuss nutrition labels and some common nutrition misconceptions is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Oh, Kate, it's so good to have you here because, you know, I have trouble understanding these labels. The FDA has recently made some changes, and they're supposed to be better? They're supposed to be easier for the consumer to understand?
2: They are supposed to be more consumer-friendly and more realistic.
1: Oh, are they? Mm -hmm. But are they?
2: (laughs) Well, and I think that will continue to be debated.
1: (laughs) Okay. So what's different? What's new? Why are they better?
2: So looking at the new labels, what they're going to do, first and foremost, is bold the number of calories and so when you're looking at the calories in that particular food uh, you'll want to compare it to I guess first the serving size because the serving size is supposed to be more realistic and in making the serving size more realistic and then bolding the calories it's meant to be representative of what uh, Americans may eat and so right there getting a handle on a population that probably consumes too many calories or is unaware of their calories, it's putting a spotlight on those.
1: And and do you think most people in this country know how many calories they ought to be eating a day? And how do you know what that number is?
2: Right. And... That, in and of itself, is variable from person to person because it really is dependent on how tall you are, what your current body size is, and then what activities you are enjoying or what your goals are in terms of a healthy lifestyle. So that number, although in a lot of nutrition packages you'll see it referenced as 2,000 calories, may or may not be the right number for all Americans.
1: So where would they come up with the 2,000?
2: Well, there is some research to support that most people can maintain a healthy weight at around 2,000 calories.
1: Men and women?
2: More more so women with men having a little bit higher number. So it's just an average. For the average American, the average number of calories. That's correct.
1: Okay. And it will tell you on that label how many calories are in there per serving.
2: Right. So if, if the very top of that nutrition facts panel will have a serving amount. And then right below that, it'll have the calories for that serving. And an important point to make is you, as the consumer of that product, decide, am I going to eat that amount or will I eat more or will I eat less? That's probably one of the most eye-opening things when you have to
3: start keeping track of that, what the serving size is. Because I would imagine most Americans do not eat the serving size. They eat whatever size bowl they have of Frosted Flakes.
2: Right. We Not make, the serving size of Frosted Flakes. We make comparisons to what our eye is used to seeing. And so actually using some measuring cups or some, something to reference a portion of a cup is a, is a good idea.
1: And what else is important to look for on that label?
2: So additionally, some changes that they made on the label is that in the sugar section under carbohydrates, they are going to add the amount of added sugars, which I think is a real plus because added sugars uh, add sweetness but not a lot of nutrition. And so when we're looking for foods that are more nutritional, um, having less added sugar I think will be a good thing, or at least allowing people to make a more informed decision because the current labels you can't tell. So that's important for something like apple juice. Is that, is that fair to say? Because it's made out of
3: apples or applesauce. Maybe say that it's made out of apples, but then more sugar is added to it. So you're not counting the sugar in the apples. You're just counting the added sugar. Is that what you're
2: saying? Right. So if you look at a contain in a few years, mm-hmm. when you look at a container of applesauce, the uh, amount of sugar that occurs naturally from the apples, which is good, nutritious, energy, will be separate than the sugar that they add simply to sweeten it. Huh.
1: Is that where it says, so I'm looking at a label here, and it has total carb- carbohydrate uh, uh, 12% or 37 grams, and then under that it has dietary fiber, 4 grams, 16%, and then it has sugars, 1 gram. Is that added sugar? Currently, it's all sugar. It's ah, all the it's sugar. The, so it's,
2: it's, it's the, the naturally occurring and the added and so as a consumer right now, we don't know. We can try to discern by looking at the ingredient list because the ingredient list will, in weighted order, list what's in it first into, by weighted order, what's in it least last. And so if you're seeing many different names for sugar in, within the ingredients, chances are there's more added sugars.
1: So there's not, th- this label is not out yet. Correct. The new ones. And when when do you think that will happen?
2: Well, it's been approved. And so now the food companies will have, I think it's about two years, to make the switch over on all their products.
1: So if you were going to look at a label, uh, an ideal label in terms of a a health food, a a healthy food, what would you look for, top to bottom?
2: So if I were looking for a healthy food, um, and granted all foods – are different, and so when we're looking, but if we were thinking about something in terms of a meal, so say we were looking at something that was meant to be an entire meal, you'd want to choose something that had a reasonable amount of calories. Now, um, when you think of a calories for a meal, again, making if we use that reference point of about 2,000 calories, most meals, you then you'd probably want them within that 4 to 600 calorie range. Depending on if you have snacks or not during the day.
1: Well, you can you're eat three meals a day, right? Correct. So it would be like 700, six or 700 calories, right? <laughs> no snacks. Get you for you, huh? 2, no snacks. Oh, no, man. So.
3: You're a strong man. That's not my deal. <laughs> I need all snacks. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, four to
1: 600. I'm, so I'm with you in a snack. You get so, a snack.
2: So you'd want a reasonable amount of calories. And then okay. what you'll see next on the label is the. The fat. And so, in terms of fat, I think not so much are we worried about the amount rather than we are more so the type. Not that amount doesn't matter at all because fat is very calorically dense. And so, if you're watching your overall calorie intake, it's important to also watch the amount of fat. But choosing healthier fats. And so, again, if looking for items that are lower in saturated fat, so if you see the percent. Uh, across from the saturated fat you want that number to be lower
1: what's up what's low
2: so 5% or less would be considered a low number. Okay. And um, and in terms of trans fat, um, food manufacturers have gotten the message that they should remove trans fat from their products. And so we're seeing less of it, but you still may have some trans fat hidden in products. And the best thing there is even go beyond the nutrition facts and look right in the ingredients to see if there's anything that's partially hydrogenated. Because that's what it says if it's trans fat. It's partially hydrogenated. Right. And depending on the number of servings you eat, you might get more of that than you actually
1: realize. All right. What do I want to look for for carbohydrates and protein?
2: Sure. So in terms of carbohydrates and protein, you want to – carbohydrates are our main source of energy. And so in our overall diet, carbohydrates should range anywhere from about 50 60% of our total calorie intake. So – when you're looking at it meal per meal, I mean you could you could use that same thing, or you could um, you know you're probably going to see more carbohydrate, and the reason being it's because it is our main source of fuel. However, you do want to have an adequate amount of protein in terms of hunger control. So again, if we were looking at this being a full meal, we would want it to have probably 10 to 20 percent of our protein um, in order to kind of keep us from
1: wanting to have that snack too soon. All right, Kate Zaratsky, she's a nutritionist at the Mayo Clinic and dietitian. Uh, we've been talking about nutrition facts, and when we come back after a short break, we're going to be talking about some myths with regard to nutrition and your favorite topic, ancient grains. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I do love them, and why are we talking about them at lunchtime? Dang it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, there's been a lot of buzz lately about ancient grains and their possible benefits, you know, stuff like millet and teff and whatever that stuff you talk about (laughs) every week. Quinoa. (laughs) Uh, You actually eat it, don't you? I love it. Well, uh, there may be a place for these instead of traditional grains like wheat, corn, and rice that we grew up on back in Iowa. So we want to talk about those, but before we do that, let's talk again. About uh, the new nutrition labels, nutrition facts, and a few misconceptions that are out there when it comes to nutrition.
3: Yes, our guest is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky, and we have five misconceptions when it comes to nutrition. One of them we already talked about, which was the 2,000
2: calories a day. I would say it's not necessarily a myth, yet it might not be an accurate number for every single person. Okay. Another thing that can be confusing for consumers is looking at those percentages that run down the right-hand side of the nutrition facts label, or even any other numbers. None of the numbers necessarily add up. This
1: is the percent daily value. Exactly what does that mean, and why doesn't it add up?
2: Right. And so the percent daily value is in reference to the particular nutrient that it's across from. Some of the nutrients, like the fat and the protein and the carbohydrate, are in reference to that 2,000-calorie diet. Whereas things like vitamins and minerals and the fiber, those would be referenced against a reference value. So it might be the DRIs, which is the daily recommended intake, or something along those lines that the Institutes of Medicine sets up. All right. What about the third thing on your list of misconceptions? So I think another very important point is to look at the servings that you'll eat in, out of any container, make make note of the serving size, and if it says the serving is one container, you know, recognize that rather than if it's half a container or. All right, all calories count. That's number four on your
3: misconception list, but I don't understand what that means.
2: Sure, and I think it's the idea that it could mean a couple different things. Calories count, no matter if it's calories from fat, calories from carbohydrate, calories from protein. And I think that's a common misconception that maybe one calorie is better than, than the other. Now, when you eat different foods like carbohydrate, protein, or fat, they're going to do different things for you. Carbohydrates give you energy. Protein is great, and, and actually fat and protein both are really great for hunger control and helping you feel satisfied following a meal. And so they're all very important. Um, in terms of calories say that if a package says that it's maybe sugar-free or fat-free and those are very commonly used as marketing tools to think that oh if it's sugar-free or fat-free those are necessarily better calories than other (laughs) calories no it it doesn't necessarily mean that it might be that those calories come from more saturated fat but and don't those things usually have the partially hydrogenated stuff in them, the sugar-free and fat-free stuff? It very well could. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't have the partially hydrogenated, sometimes they replace it with a saturated fat. And so we have to just really be careful. All right. And the final thing on your list of nutritional misconceptions? Sure. Is- Um, the amount of salt that we consume. You know, as Americans, I guess because we live in 2016 and and a lot of our food products do come from grocery stores and so they are in a can, a box, or a package, most of the packaged food we eat contributes to most of the sodium that we have in our diet. And so more than... Say 75, 85 percent of the uh, sodium in our diets coming from those packaged type products. Because salt's a good preservative, and it also helps enhance flavor. And so I think people have gotten the message that to put the salt shaker away. Um, however, I think if we could strive to eat a bit more. Um, Whole Foods, where if you wanted to add a little salt, if you're cooking more from scratch, I think you have that liberty.
1: And you know her- what? I don't, I don't think they're ever going to make this easy enough for most people to understand. I think when you go to the store, there ought to be labels on the food, and the first one would say, this is pretty healthy. You could go ahead and eat this. The <laughs> other one ought to say, you probably shouldn't eat this. And you want a the, green
3: light, a yellow light, and or and a red light? And
1: the last one should say, this is really unhealthy. You really shouldn't <laughs> eat this. So, or you follow the cardiologist diet, which is if it tastes good, spit it out.
3: <laughs> <laughs> or, or shop or shop around the outside of the grocery store. <laughs> I remember that's a lot of fresh stuff, and that's a good way to do it. You'll avoid a lot of packages if you if you shop the perimeter. Okay, now By
1: your ancient grains. Well, we because that, we huh? had a
3: big debate during a news <laughs> meeting about ancient grains: is it all hype or is it a good thing? First of all, for Mr know it all over here.
2: What are ancient grains and why are they so fabulous? So ancient (laughs) grains um, are grains that probably closely resemble their ancestor of maybe hundreds of years ago. And so they haven't changed much over the course of time. And why are they hot right now? Is it just hype? They're being
3: used in ingredients lists more? or What's the deal?
2: Well, I think they're they're becoming more popular. I could say, you know, maybe we could look at a few different reasons, but one of the reasons might be because people have become um, more savvy about avoiding um, either by choice or by medical need to avoid gluten. Oh, and okay. And so a lot of, not a lot, but some of the the ancient grains are gluten-free grains because they're mm-hmm. not within the wheat family.
1: Some of them, but not all of them, Some, right? but
2: not all, exactly. So
1: some of those are safe for people with celiac disease to, to consume, but some not. Mm -hmm. So you have to know which is which and which some have gluten.
2: You still still want to look. And and actually, we have a list out on mayoclinic.com if uh, people want to reference that. Is there
3: a benefit to eating ancient grains? I mean, like Tom was saying, there's a long list of things that fall into this. And basically, any grain that you didn't know of before, that's an
2: ancient grain now. But are there benefits to them? Well, see, most ancient grains are whole grains. And, so, and that's what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And so within that category of whole grain, you're going to get the benefits of more fiber generally. A lot of these ancient grains are higher in protein. And so those two combinations right there, fiber and protein, make for a very satisfying meal component and so they're they're great to add for that reason whole grains are also good sources of of many b vitamins vitamin e some have iron um or some more than others so So they are better than just brown rice or something so they they do in certain cases i guess each grain has their own unique nutritional profile and so you can you can look at those things if there's if you want more iron or calcium or if you're looking for anything specific but they All in general are going to be a fairly good source of fiber, a great source of energy, and some maybe. How do we
3: add them to our diet?
2: Sure, and I think you can. And I think this is maybe again going back to our original question: Why are they such a hot trend right now? And I think when people are looking just for something new and exciting, and maybe not just a rice pilaf, and so the idea that you could use any of these grains. in that fashion or mixed with other foods, but you could also add them as part of a salad or part of breads, and they have different textures, and so some might be chewy or some might have a little bit more of a crunch to them. So, uh, a lot of them have kind of a nutty flavor, and so they do. They, I think they offer from the, I guess, to your palate. Uh, they're very pleasing.
1: So uh, what do you say to people who uh, tell you that grains make them feel bloated?
2: Right, and I think, you know, truthfully, if you have not eaten many carbohydrates, um, carbohydrates by nature, when they are digested, will require a little bit more water. So as you start to eat more grains, you're going to hold on to a little bit more water. And so that should that's just water, though, and that should flush um, over time. Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Kate. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have some tips on exercise during pregnancy.
3: And later on in the show, the importance of body donation to help medical students study anatomy. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Every year, millions of people get sick from the flu. The virus causes symptoms such as fever, body ache, sore throat, runny nose, and cough. Mayo Clinic experts say the best way to protect yourself from contracting the flu is to get a flu vaccine. But there are other precautions you can take to further increase your odds of staying healthy during flu season. Dr. Vandana Bide says everyone who is able should get the flu vaccine. You do have to get it every single year. Dr. Bide says flu shots are very effective, but... No vaccine is 100%. There's always a small chance you could still get sick. So, in addition to getting the vaccine, Dr. Bide has three tips to help prevent the flu. Number one, Hand washing, Frequent hand washing to prevent uh, viral infections. And if you do have any kind of infection, whether it's influenza or some other upper respiratory infection, stay home. Staying home so you don't infect others is number two. Number three is if you get sick, see your health care provider within 48 hours of symptoms starting. Because the faster that you can see the doctor, the faster you can be treated. But the best way to protect yourself is to get a flu vaccine. And in other news, have you ever had a massage? Doesn't that sound nice? Well, massages really can be good for you. Massage is generally considered part of complementary and alternative medicine. It's increasingly being offered along with standard treatment for many medical conditions and situations. Studies show massage reduces stress, pain, and muscle tension. And more research is needed, but it may also help with issues including anxiety, digestive issues, headache, fibromyalgia and stress-related insomnia. Massage is not a replacement for traditional medical treatments but some might find it helpful. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive
3: and I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Ah, you're pregnant. <laughs> What? (laughs) You're pregnant.
3: (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: The perfect time to sit back and relax, isn't it? I mean, after all, you're more tired than usual. Your back probably aches because of the extra weight up front.
3: Yeah. Well, unless you're experiencing problems or complications, sitting around probably not ideal. Exercising can help you stay in shape and prepare for labor and delivery. Pregnancy can be a great time to get active even if you haven't exercised in a while.
1: Well, here to discuss exercising during pregnancy is family medicine physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cozine. Thanks Always again for, good to see you and have you.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: And nobody here is pregnant, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah, we're all safe.
1: Okay. well, it's There good. are some pregnant women in our listening audience, I'm sure.
3: There are. And when we uh, invited you to join us, you said this is one of the things that you would like to discuss because you talk about this with your patients. It is
4: so important. How so? Well, you know, pregnancy is a great captive time to see, to encourage healthy habits. You're seeing patients much more regularly, especially young patients, than you might otherwise. You know, kind of every four to six weeks, and women are also really motivated to do the right thing for their baby. They may not have been motivated to do the right thing for themselves, but (laughs) but now they've got a baby on board and they're thinking about things they can do to set both themselves and the baby, up for success.
1: So uh, I, the things that a pregnant woman should do and probably wants to do because of the baby is stop smoking.
4: Absolutely. Smoked,
1: you can't drink. Nobody drinks There's when no they're pregnant There's s- no known huh?
4: safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy.
1: And uh, exercise is, is good for both the mother and the baby?
4: absolutely. And if you have been a regular exerciser, you can just keep up doing what you're doing. And if you have not been a regular exerciser, it's a great time to get started. And you can actually increase your fitness and increase your intensity of exercise during your pregnancy very safely. Is there something in
3: particular that you should be concentrating on, you know, cardiovascular or weights or what should you be doing?
4: So I would, first of all, encourage just... General cardiovascular activity, starting with walking and somebody who hasn't been um, a regular exerciser, shooting for 30 to 60 minutes, five to six days a week. If you enjoy that, why not go for a jog? Give it a try. And there's no reason that a pregnant woman couldn't do things like exercise, boot camp style workouts, which are really popular these days, or even weight training.
1: Are there some uh, types of activity that pregnant women should avoid?
4: There are a few things that are strictly to be avoided during pregnancy, like scuba diving or really high-intensity things where you might... Now,
1: why scuba diving? Scuba diving. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed like you could get down a little faster.
4: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take advantage of not having to wear a weight belt. Yeah. No, um, scuba diving is dangerous because of the pressure changes for the fetus. All right. Okay. And what other things? So other things um, like skiing... Oh. paragliding, you know, just basically things that are really dangerous <laughs> that things you might that fall. So, might exactly. <laughs> so I wouldn't want you doing something where you might fall and land on the abdomen and potentially injure the the baby. So I love
1: contact it. Sports. Contact. contact sports. Contact right. sports. Right. What All about right. weightlifting?
4: Weightlifting? Absolutely. There's no reason you can't. No
3: problem. And we were joking beforehand about yoga but I love when I'm in a yoga class and there's a mom or two in the yeah. room and that's good for her, I suppose, just because she's reducing stress by Absolutely. going to yoga. Absolutely,
4: and um, stretching things out, that you know does bring to mind that there are some hormones that can make your ligaments and muscles a little more stretchy during pregnancy. And so just being cautious about what you're doing in terms of stretching and weightlifting, because you might be a little more loosey-goosey than you were prior to being pregnant. But yoga or something like that is great because it allows you to relax stretch out and you may find you have to modify your poses as your body shape changes.
1: Is it important uh, when women are pregnant women are exercising or or is it a good idea for them to monitor their heart rate? Is there a point at which you would say "Ooh, that's 150 or 260 is a little too much?
4: 15 years ago or so it was thought that heart rate monitoring during pregnancy was really important. What we're finding now is that for the average person it's really not necessary to monitor the heart rate during exercise. It becomes a little bit of a different story for somebody like an elite athlete. I don't take care of very many elite athletes, Mm -hmm. but if I did, I'd probably just look up and consult with uh, an obstetrician who has more expertise. So,
1: So it's good to be young. So yeah they right. have to worry right. too much about
4: and your- an elite athlete yeah
3: <laughs> great uh, so people who are um exercising on a regular basis anyway they're fine, they can kind of just keep doing what they 're doing, and it's all good. But when you said you know you've got that motherly guilt yeah. that already starts off, so where should people start? Do they just start with walking, or should they where
4: should they begin? I start with walking, I think walking is a great exercise. you can do it anywhere, all you need is a good fitting pair of shoes, you can fit it in and in short bursts throughout the day and um you know, with the baby on board, you better start to learn to multitask. So you but can you, fit your exercise in when you've got t- a time. You just feel like sitting down. <laughs> and so then I say, I was like, it's a good excuse to just sit down. I'm pregnant. That's absolutely true. It <laughs> does feel good to sit down. Um, I think it feels even better to stay active. You know, when I was pregnant, there were moments when I did not want to drag myself out the door. But when I did, I felt more like myself. And it is a time when you are changing in a lot of ways both physically and mentally and emotionally and by having that stress outlet plus keeping yourself fit that's just a great way of self-care
1: and you can do it right up to delivery
4: yeah and as you get closer to delivery you do get a little bit more uncomfortable you are full of a baby and so things like swimming can be helpful where there's not weight on your body and you feel maybe like you did 25 pounds ago yeah, yeah you but just, no
1: scuba diving. No just, scuba you diving. You can't go too deep.
4: You just slow the pace. You <laughs> slow the roll when you've got that
3: baby right. and just about ready to go. Are there other questions that uh, expectant moms have for you about
4: exercising? One question that often comes up is trying to avoid uh, whether or not they need to avoid exercise on their back. And I do say in the second and third trimester, don't recommend prolonged laying on the back, mainly because of the risk of kind of low blood pressure in the mom when she moves up.
1: Are there uh, certain complications of pregnancy that would preclude a woman exercising?
4: Yeah, I think so. So if you are somebody who has had a history of preterm labor, um, or you're you're having regular contractions, you're having loss of fluid, those would be reasons I wouldn't want you exercising. I would want you to talk to your doctor immediately if those things were happening. But um, there are very few reasons that you can't exercise during pregnancy.
1: If a woman's blood Blood pressure starts going up. Uh, I assume that exercise is probably good.
4: Yeah. I, I would extent. say, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Exercise can help keep the weight in check. And um, regular monitoring with your doctor is important if your blood pressure is going up during pregnancy.
1: You know, it's been a long time since I went to medical school. What's the, uh, What do you recommend in terms of weight gain for, for someone during pregnancy? So
4: the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists and the Institute of Medicine agree that for somebody with a normal BMI, the weight gain would be 25 to 35 pounds during pregnancy. Um, as you get into the overweight weight range, And don't quote me exactly on this, but it's more uh, 15 to 25. And then for an obese woman, we don't want her to gain more than 15 pounds.
1: Oh, wow. So 25 or 35 pounds? That's where I
4: try to keep people. And I I do focus on that during prenatal appointments, just being aware of it. You know, not everybody gains weight linearly during their pregnancy, not just a pound a week. You know, I knew there were weeks when I shot up five pounds and then didn't gain again for a month. But just paying attention to what you're doing to try to stay within that weight window is both good for your recovery and good for the baby.
1: All right. Try not to gain too much weight. And exercise is key, even if you're pregnant.
4: Thanks, Dr. Cozine. so much.
1: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how body donation is important in training new physicians.
3: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Anatomy is the study of the structure and function of the human body. Oh, well, I remember. (laughs) Days or months or two semesters, I think, we had of anatomy. But it is truly one of the most important courses in the education of doctors and physical therapists and a lot of other healthcare professionals.
3: Body donation plays a critical role in helping medical and health-related science students to master the complex anatomy Of the human body and provides researchers with an essential tool for discovery to help patients.
1: Well, where do the bodies come from? Uh, Here to discuss body donation is the coordinator of the Bequest Program at Mayo Clinic, Mr. Sean Heath. Welcome to
5: the program, Sean. Good to have you. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me here, Tracy and Dr. Shives. I appreciate the opportunity.
3: It is kind of a strange job that you have, or not. Do you think there's nothing strange uh, about it at all? Well,
5: there are some aspects of it that are a little unique, and mm-hmm. uh, there's not very many opportunities to have this ability to provide this type of opportunity to the, the medical community.
3: Now, this this uh, radio program is heard on 90-plus stations across the country, and so it's a little bit unique to the Rochester, Minnesota area that there are probably more people, percentage-wise, who consider donating their body to science. Is that fair to say?
5: Absolutely. And I think it's fair to say, too, that because of the scope of Mayo Clinic and the patients that travel here from all over the country, that uh, we have a great deal of interest across the U.S. in body donation. And because of that, we do, unlike many other programs throughout the United States, do accept donors who want to bequest their body from all across the U.S., And so it just allows us to be able to fulfill the wish and scope of what Mayo seeks to do in terms of reaching the the community uh, outside of the Rochester area.
1: Don't you find it sort of interesting that there are as many people as there are who want to do this?
5: Absolutely. And uh, there's several reasons for that. And one of them, and and the most important, is because they have been affected by Mayo Clinic in terms of either themselves, the health care that they've received, or a family member and it's the the compassion and the uh, the impression that they get when they meet all of the the employees here at the clinic that uh, strikes them and for many of them that's what motivates them to want to donate their body to Mayo Clinic
1: and, and i don't even know exactly how the process works i mean if a patient of mine said you know i want to give my body donate my body to to mayo um when i'm
5: uh, when i'm gone how do you do that? What what do we contact you? At- sure. Sure. And so uh, there's a that's a good question because there are many folks who put this in their advanced directive or their healthcare directive. Okay. And uh, they make the the notation that they want to donate their bodies to science. Uh, we do have a specific consent form for our program at Mayo Clinic and it's important to know that there are some aspects about what we do in terms of body donation here that um, may make the decision for some whether they want to do this or not. When you say donation, it can mean so many different things. Mm -hmm. And um, we just want to be clear of what we do and what our limitations are so that the family and uh, the individual who's doing this uh, is comfortable with that.
3: What actually happens to the body you know when a when a person dies Mm -hmm. um, if it doesn't go I would I don't know what you want to say the traditional route
5: but what what happens to the body and then how long do you is it used sure sure well our length of study can be anywhere from 6 to 15 months and that is completely dependent on the curriculum that we have going on and also the medical conditions of the, the person who passes away and so Uh, often what we do the the vast majority of what we do in our area is procedural skills training and that entails anything from teaching orthopedic residents how to do knee arthroscopies or other joint replacements to teaching internal medicine residents how to do thoracentesis or paracentesis. And so most so of those well, are uh, operations on the heart and the lung. Correct. Get correct. the fluid out
1: of, from around the lung. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, the, and those Procedures. Are
5: just, right. And those are just two examples. We serve almost every specialty throughout the clinic in terms of training, product development, uh, educational purposes, those sorts of things and so uh, that's a vast majority of what we do although we do the gross anatomy the more foundational aspects of learning how the body works and functions uh, but I would say 85% of what we do is more catered to the direct patient benefit in terms of the day-to-day aspects of what the staff and the residents and clinicians do that will help better prepare them for patient care.
3: So does the student just use a body during that course of time, whatever many months you just listed, whatever it ends up being? Then
5: what happens to the body? At the end of our educational studies, we do offer a form of cremation right within our facility here on the clinic campus, and if the family so chooses, we can provide that service of cremation and then return the cremated remains either to the family or we do have cemetery property here at Oakwood Cemetery in Rochester. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that the medical students don't do
1: the dissection of the entire cadaver like like we did when I went to medical school, right?
5: Well, di- well, some do. And uh, so the different curriculums that we have, the medical school... Uh, does use the entire body. They go through all the organ systems, the upper limb, the lower limb. They're trying to to learn everything. Uh, The other curriculum that we have, the physical therapy. Obviously, they're more focused on the musculoskeletal system and learning the muscles and and the the ligaments and joints and things that they'll need to do when they see patients. And so uh, in terms of the resident training, the more procedural skills type of events that we do, that's more specialized. And so we're able to have more of those departments involved in the body because they're more focused on one area or the other in terms of their curriculum or what they're hoping to study.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly beneficial, incredibly helpful to medical students, to physical therapists, and as you mentioned, to
5: learning how to do certain procedures to actually do it. There is no model that's as good as the human body. That's correct. And there have been studies uh, here through different simulations and trainers that there really is no way to replicate that experience without the use of people who donate their bodies.
3: Dr. Shives, did you know the name of the person that was your... Body that you used in your medical school?
1: No. Did
5: they tell you that? No,
1: we never. We had names for them. Mm-hmm. We named them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was always very respectful. I, I, I think all the medical students uh, are very respectful of the of the bodies that are donated because you realize how important it is to your uh, education. Mm-hmm. But I, I, knew, I don't think... And that's still true today. We wouldn't you know the know name the of the donor, would
5: we? We do disclose the first name of the oh, donor okay. along with their age and their occupation. And that helps... The the students make that connection with their donor because as they're going through their curriculum they're wondering mm-hmm. who is this person what did they do obviously they have family they have brothers and sisters and a spouse and so as they think about that and they think about their own mortality in addition to what they're mm-hmm. trying to learn it helps make that connection and connection because it is their first patient so how many uh, bodies in your lab right now well and that varies from time to time. But in the course of a year, uh, last year we had two hundred seventeen donors, And they're all in various states of uh, of how they're used because of the different curriculum that goes on. so do you do you have more uh, donors than you need? Well, currently, uh, no, we are still in need, but uh, we are registering approximately seven hundred consents annually. And so our need, which is about 217 to 219 per year, down the line, if if that number of donors that registered passed away in the course of a year, we may not have that opportunity to use all of those bequests in that period of time. Let's
3: go back to our 94 radio stations, and someone in Maine wants to give their body to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota.
5: Is that even possible? Absolutely. It certainly is. There's a few things to know about that. The first and most important thing is to make sure that that consent is in place. Uh, Second is to inform your family of what your wishes are, because if they don't know what you want to do, it won't happen. And if you do want to do that, the thing that will need to happen is a relationship with a local funeral home, and they will be critical in terms of helping to coordinate the transportation to Minnesota. And there also is some cost. And generally, the further that you get away, there's going to be some cost to your family. But there is no distance that's too far away to, uh, to not make this happen.
1: All right, Mr. Sean Heath, coordinator of the Bequest Program at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. We learned a lot. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for having me. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs
3: tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming
1: program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.